This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Welcome to episode of a given number of the Make America Great Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Burkett, CSW. I'm here with my good friend Elizabeth Creaker. And I am not the host, but I'm enjoying <laughs> being here with Cody. We're recording this and a couple of next episodes, by the way, at Square Root Vineyards, owned by uh, Linda Pearson and John Peterson. So it's a really lovely little Airbnb in Cornville. Uh, it's a beautiful spot. They have uh, Vignet and Carignan planted. It's only the third planting of Carignan in the state of Arizona. But anyway, on to the wine. She was kind enough on her travels recently to bring back up a couple of bottles for me. We are focusing on one of those bottles. So today's episode is going to be Wisconsin. The wine in question is the Wollersheim Winery Prairie Fumé, which is American Saval semi-dry wine, 2016 vintage. On the label, it's described, Prairie Fumé is a fresh white with citrus and tropical highlights with a hint of sweetness. Naturally acclaimed double gold medal winner. The winery is most popular wine, perfect for every occasion and taste. <laughs> so Elizabeth, why don't you tell me a little bit about the uh, layout of the wine scene in Wisconsin? There's more than 110 wineries in Wisconsin. It's even bigger than Arizona. There's five wine regions and three AVAs. One of the AVAs, the Upper Mississippi River Valley, is shared with Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota. It's a huge AVA. So the first grapes, and I'm going to have to have you pronounce this guy's name, the first grapes were planted by a Hungarian nobleman. So this guy, uh, Agostor Harsley, which I may have also mispronounced, but I'm confident in my mispronunciation. I expect the entire Hungarian contingent of listeners to write me angry emails, all one of you, at least at this point. He was the one who also was kind of uh, in charge of pioneering uh, the Buena Vista Viticultural Society, which formed the Buena Vista Winery in 1863, which was the first large corporation in California for the express purpose of engaging in viticulture. But, as Elizabeth pointed out, his first experiments with viticulture were in Wisconsin at this vineyard site, which is Wollersheim Vineyard. So, uh, Wollersheim Winery is on the site of this old, uh, his original private vineyard. He mostly experimented with uh, American hybrid varietals. Uh, Saval Blanc is a grape that we have not met yet in this podcast. We've met it on the Arizona Wine Monk in my other podcast a couple of times because there is a planting actually just down the river from us, come to think of it. So Saval Blanc uh, is a complex American hybrid. I thought I marked it in the book. There we go. According to the Big Red Wine Book, it is one of the more successful pale-skinned French hybrids, popular in marginal climates, especially England. It's a cross of Cybelle 5656 and Rayon d'Or, sort of related to Prior as a varietal. It was used to breed Birstaller Muscat, Cayuga White, Chardonnay, Lacrosse, Melody, Rizel, and St. Pepin. We'll talk about a little bit more about St. Pepin a little bit later in another podcast because it's connected to the genetics of another fun wine we'll be exploring soon. Um, according to the Big Red Wine Book, it is early to mid-ripening, vigorous and fertile, with consistently high yields and good all-around disease resistance, uh, but susceptible to botrytis brunch rot. 
berries apparently have a downy skin. It's authorized in many French wine regions, interestingly, but recommended in none of them, which is entertaining. But it's very popular in the Northeast, also very popular in the Midwest, and there is also a vineyard that's actually two vineyards in Arizona that are growing it. There's, of course, DA Ranch, which is growing the, the largest plot of Sobol Blanc in Arizona. But there is a winery near Tombstone, and I can't remember the name of it. It's not High Lonesome, it's the other one that is also growing Sobol Blanc. Hmm, I didn't know about that. Surprise! <laughs> I, I know some things. <laughs> well, before we get there... What else would you like to tell us about uh, the wine scene in Wisconsin? What was the winery like? Well, I wasn't able to go to this winery. I purchased this wine actually in Chicago. I was okay. visiting Chicago with um, for my son's wedding, and I purchased the winery at Binney's, which is the coolest wine store I've ever been to. So Binney's is this old, and there's many of them. So it looks like kind of a total wine type of store because oh. they're, they're all over the place. So you think it's sort of like a chain. But when you go into the wine stores, they have amazing wines. And unfortunately, I drank it and couldn't bring it back with me. But among the wines I tasted from that, that wine store was the first wine, I mean, not the first wine, but the first winery to ever plant Pinot Noir grapes in Oregon. In oh, fact, it was cool. the first winery in Oregon, and I tasted one of their wines because it was there at this wine store. So if you ever go to Chicago, Benny's is the place to go. And they had Wallersheim. It was the only local wine that they had, and it was fabulous. So That really surprises me because there's a, a, a sort of, not sort of, there is a, a, a thriving wine scene in the Shawnee Hills AVA in southern Illinois. In southern Illinois. Chicago's in northern Illinois, and apparently those two regions don't talk to each other. So but that's kind of surprising. I mean, yeah. Wilcox and the Verde Valley have this long extended dialogue, and they're even further apart, I would think. I think they probably are, yeah. That, that's an interesting thing. I wonder why there, there's that sort of dichotomy in, in knowledge. But yeah, I, I'm surprised that that was the only local area. But this is a lot of fun. It is. It's a lot of fun. So Wallersheim is located in Prairie du Sac in the um, upper Mississippi River Valley AVA. It was founded in the 1840s by our friend, the Hungarian nobleman. Augustine Hardazafi. <laughs> who's recognized as the first. The vineyard's only changed hands twice since. So the first time it changed hands, um, the owners converted the, wine, the vineyard to a conventional farm because they were just really struggling with the grapes in Wisconsin's cold climate. But the winery was revived in 1972 when the property was purchased by Robert and Joanne Wallersheen. They planted the hills with grapevines. They furnished the limestone cellars with oak barrels. They converted the old carriage house into a wine store. Now, the fun thing about this particular winery is the site is actually the site of the third oldest winery uh, in the U.S. We met the oldest winery in passing in our very first episode in Kentucky. Winery number two which is most what most people declare as the oldest winery in the U.S. is the, uh, oh yeah, Brotherhood Winery in Washingtonville, New York, is usually described as the oldest winery in the United States, but the oldest winery that's still in production in the U.S. Uh, that winery in Kentucky is no longer producing. So this makes the Wallersheim Winery the second oldest still producing winery in the U.S., which I think is really cool. And I'm pleased that they, they ended up with Saval because that's a, a grape that I've had a love-hate relationship with this varietal yeah. for a long time because it reminded me of, of someone I was once very close to that oh. ended horribly, um, as most of my relationships do. <laughs> oh. 
But on the nose, it's just bright because it reminds me of one of my favorite wines at one of my favorite local wineries, which is their Picapool at Chateau Tumbleweed. It's very bright, lots of light citrus, light floral notes. Um, it's also got this sort of um, rambling, earthy character on the nose that's like smelling like slightly damp earth, slightly damp sand. Uh, and then underneath it, there's just a little bit of vanilla, which led us to, to have a, a mini discussion before we were recording on whether this was potentially barrel fermented. Uh, because uh, for those of you who know, uh, fumé blanc, which was a term coined by um, Mondavi, is a term that's kind of catch-all used in the U.S. for Sauvignon Blanc that is seen oak in the U.S., um, so the thought was, well, maybe this is the Saval that has seen oak, so therefore that's why they're using the Fumé name. But it could also just be a connection to that, that white wine Sauvignon Blanc in that style. Not necessarily barrel fermented. Um, we don't know one way or the other. It was definitely uh, done using cold fermentation, which is uh, basically one of these main byproducts of fermentation is intense heat. Using a cold fermentation allows you to kind of do a low and slow burn on your fermentation rather than a very quick and rapid one. Which is hard to do in Arizona because it's hard to keep things cool enough, but it's probably easier there. Especially if they have an underground section, like you were saying. What are you getting on the nose? It's got a really delicate nose, a lot of citrus, a little bit of floral, much more delicate nose than the palate, because when I taste it, it just explodes with flavor. So it explodes with lemon and Oh, just all kinds of wonderful flavors. Lemon rind. Um, gosh, there's something else. I can't quite put my finger on it. You're getting a sort of a... Like melon. Yeah, like honeydew, honeydew melon. Yeah. Uh, almost also like sort of like mallow too, like mm -hmm. mallow root. Uh, some white flowers like maybe verbena or acacia blossom on the nose. And the palate is, again, when I first tasted it, I went, ooh, Wow. Yeah, um, it's really crisp. It just explodes with flavor. It's Orange. very flavorful. It's very acidity. It is sweet a little bit, but it's not in your face sickeningly sweet. It's not like um, the episode before this where we were drinking the Pinot Gris from uh, the Columbia River Valley AVA, which had a lot of invert sugar, and it was just, to me, sickeningly sweet. This is, to me anyway, the right kind of sweet. It's not too sweet. It's... Also dry, you've got that acidity. It's gonna be very, very food friendly. It's also a, a porch pounder, really. Definitely, you could you could sit here in the afternoon and sip this, or you could have it with a lovely shrimp dish, or it would be wonderful. Oh, wine. this with shrimp would be amazing. Wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Or maybe like a shrimp scampi pasta type yes, thing. Or a cream sauce. This would be wonderful with a cream sauce. So the winemaker for Wallersheim Winery arrived from Beaujolais, France in 1984, and he's still there. Same guy. Apparently he loves this winery and loves the grapes and loves making wine there. And that's a good thing, uh, because to have a winemaker in a, such a long term will allow for the winemaker to kind of get a feel for what the grapes are doing every given year, be able to think more on the fly. He'll be less, I think, set in his way, so he'll be able to more adapt. Mm-hmm. I think, I, mean, I could be talking off my ass here, <laughs> um, but to me, a long-term winemaker is striking as someone who would be able to kind of get a feel for what's going on 
any given year and what's different and what's the same. Well, and especially dealing with hybrid grapes, it's not like anybody's got any history with these grapes. So it's all an experiment. Yeah. Um, but it strikes me that um, having a long-term connection not only to the seller and to the equipment and to the grapes every given year, you're going to have a, a much closer relationship and be able to be a better winemaker and more in tune with what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. Of course, Beaujolais is one of my favorite regions in, in France, too. Not just Nouveau, but but some of the Grand Cru Beaujolais are, are, are bay, in my opinion. And actually, in tasting this wine, it's got a very French style to it. Yeah, it, it does remind me a little bit of like Chablis, also uh, Languedoc Picapool, mm-hmm. which again, this is a good counterpoint to Picapool. If you cannot find a Picapool where you're at, try to find a really nice uh, light Sauvignon Blanc. And it's interesting because this is so much lighter on the palate than the both of the Savals I've tasted coming from DA, whether it's uh-huh. the Stephen Saval or the Willow White, because those are much more Chablis-like, so you've got that weight of almost limestone. And this is almost airy, and of course, we were looking at the color. It's darn near see-through, It too. really is. There's barely any color in it. Like, you'd have to say clear if you were doing it on a psalm tasting sheet. Yeah. This is fun. Uh, Thank you for bringing this for me. It was totally my pleasure. Stay tuned in about whenever I decide to upload the next episode. We're looking at a very, very special line that kind of has taken the Twitterverse by storm that Elizabeth was kind enough to bring back with her. I'm not going to say more than that. I'm going to let you guess. If you guess right, I'll give you a, I'll send you a gold star. Until (laughs) next time, make America grape again. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. You can reach us at makeamericagrapepodcast at gmail.com, on Instagram at, at the AZ Wine Monk, or on Twitter at CV Burkett. Be sure to also check out our website, makeamericagrapeagainpodcast.com. I am Elizabeth Krecker with the fabulous photographer Janelle Bonifield. I am writer of the soon-to-be-published Arizona Wine, the vineyards, wineries, and winemakers of the Grand Canyon State. You can find out more about my travels in the wine world at grapeexploration.com.